Hey everyone, it's Grant here. I hope you guys are doing well today. Uh, if we haven't met before and you're joining us for the first time, I just want to say it's great to have you with us this morning and I hope you're doing well. And just to all of you who are part of the Harbour City family, I just want to send our love and say we miss you and we love you. And if there is anything you need help with, if there's anything we can do for you, please reach out and let us know. This morning we are starting a new series. We've just spent about seven weeks in a series called Teach Us to Pray, a learning and growing in prayer as a church. And I hope that as we move on, you're not going to forget those lessons we've learned, that you'll continue in prayer, that you will abide in Jesus and just grow in your relationship with Him. But today we're starting a new three-part series called Essentials. We're going to be looking at some of the key important truths of the Bible for us at this time. And I think these three weeks, three punchy sermons, are going to be talking about some of the biggest longings and questions of the human soul, the, the things that we most need and desire as human beings. So over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about identity, belonging, and purpose. And look at what Jesus has to say about those things, what the scriptures have to say, and what the gospel has to teach us about how we find fulfillment in those areas. So I just want to ask you as we go into this this morning uh, to open your hearts up to what God is wanting to say. Grab a Bible, get a notebook, or take notes on your phone just so that you can go back through these things and um, not lose sight of the things that God has spoken to you or has highlighted to you from today. And I just want to encourage you not to be distracted if you're watching this, maybe put your phone away, um, don't multitask at the moment. Let's just be together and trust the Spirit of God to come and minister to us this morning. So today we're starting off essentials by looking at identity. I just want to say this is one of my favorite things to preach on. I love this kind of message because I think identity is so key for people today. I think there are so many ideas around identity that are out there that we want to come to God's word and say what he has to teach us about identity so that we can grow and live out of that place. Now, I think um, one of the things we've all been through, and this might feel like a, a distant memory as I tell you what it is, but we have all experienced meeting someone new before. For those of you who've been working at home for the last year, maybe you haven't met someone new in person for over a year. So this might feel a little bit archaic, old-fashioned to you. But remember in the good old days where you didn't just meet people online or through social media, but we met them in person at a party or at an event or at work or whatever it was. And you would do that dance, you know. You go through that routine that you both knew and you knew the steps. Those were the good old days when we just throw caution to the wind and not wear a mask and a hug and high five and handshake and all of that. But when those moments happen that you met someone, what would you say first? Well, you'd ask their name and say, hey, my name's Grant, what's your name? Second, I know you've all got it, what do you do? What do you do for a living? Thirdly, maybe we'd say, where are you from? Are you from here? Are you from somewhere else? And as we ask these kinds of questions, we get to know them. We get to find out who they are. And as we got more and more information, we start to put them into these categories or boxes in our minds as we understood a little bit more about them. And the reason we do that is because those things define us. They, they shape us. They, they make us who we are. And you can probably think of a bunch of others too. For some, education is a big deal. So wh where did you go to school? Or where did you go to university? Or what did you study? Or how far along did you study? Or maybe race. I think in our country, race has played a huge part in defining our nation, but each one of us and how we understand ourselves and others too. What about your family and friends, kind of your network of relationships, the social circle that you are a part of, or your relationship status? You know, are, are you single, dating, married, divorced, widowed, something else? 
What about hobbies? You know, the different hobbies we have have got subcultures and stereotypes linked to them. So that could be gym, soccer, surfing, something else. But that says something about you. We interpret that in some way. Or it could be where you live, your income bracket, the car you drive, whatever it is. I'm sure you can think of a bunch of others too. But all of these define us in some way. And the reality is we're all made up of a bunch of different things as a person, right? If I could do this, if I had the technology to do this right now, I would do a little outline of myself and put a bunch of different icons inside the lines, which connotes something of who I am. Different things that make up the person that Grant Newman Clark is. So I'm a man, I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I thought about this the other day, my daughter turned one years old on Thursday, so that means for 3% of my life I've been her dad. I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a pastor and a preacher, I'm a boxer, or at least I was before lockdown and my gym closed down. I used to be a copywriter at an advertising agency, I used to skateboard all the time, some weekends, three, six more hours a day. I used to study at Howard College, that was four years of my life. I used to play Lego, I used to wet the bed, but that was days ago. I also uh, used to want to become a private investigator, but that was when I was five years old. And as I put all of those things out to you, I guess the question is, who am I? Who am I? What is my core identity? As I share some of those things with you, underneath all of those things, what is the truest thing about me underneath all of that stuff? Who is Grant Clark? Who am I is a hugely important question. And the reality is whether you've intentionally answered that before or not, we've all answered that question, whether that was passively or actively. But maybe this is a time for you to stop what you're watching, stop the sermon, and answer this for yourself. Who are you? Fill in the blank. I am dot, dot, dot. And maybe you even want to discuss that with the people you're watching this with. Who are you? What makes you, you? For many of us, whether we have thought about this or intentionally answered this question before or not, the answer could look something like this. I am my job. I am my relationship status or lack of a relationship status. I am my greatest or most recent success or failure because we're not just defined by positive things. We can be defined by negative things too. Maybe it's I am what I have, you know, I am my possessions, my house, my car, my clothes, or again, the negative, I am what I don't have. I'm constantly chasing after this thing, so I think when I get that, then I'll be who I want to be, the kind of person I want to be, then I'll be satisfied or saved. Or I am my race, my gender, my sexuality, my income, my abilities, my inabilities, or my sin. Or I am what other people say to me. Any other people pleasers out there? This is one of the struggles of my life, uh, the idol of approval, wanting people to like me. And I'm sure we've all experienced this, but the people around us put labels on us. Some really positive labels, encouragements, things that build us up. But some labels that tear us down, that hurt us, that define us negatively, that shape us in a way that God has never intended. Maybe that's you today and you realize some of who you are, the way you see yourself is shaped more by the words of people than by the words of God. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a success or a failure? Do you see yourself as loved or rejected, valuable or worthless? Do you see yourself as somebody or nobody? Who are you and what defines you? I've been a pastor for almost half of my life now. 
And when I sit down with someone to have a conversation, uh, to talk to them, I realize that they are bringing a lot to the table. Kind of like that outline I was speaking about, filled with different icons or emblems that connote something about them. You know, I realize that they bring a lot with them. And I'm not just talking about baggage. I'm talking about a lot of ideas, a lot of things that define them, a lot of things that are important to them. And my goal as a pastor is to help people to know and follow and enjoy and serve Jesus completely all in. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a professional counselor. People can see pastors in a lot of different ways. But really, my goal is to point people to Jesus and to help them to follow him. And in a conversation where I'm trying to do that, I realize that there's a lot of things pulling on someone in different ways, you know, pulling on their time, pulling on their thinking, pulling on their money, pulling on their energy, pulling on their decision making, pulling on their identity, their sexuality, their relationships. There's a lot of these pulls. And as much as they might have a desire to give their whole allegiance to Jesus, and as much as I might have that same desire, there are other things competing for their allegiance, competing for their lives, competing for who they are, and things that define them in different ways. I'm sure as I say that about the meetings I have with people, you realize sitting at home that this is true for you too. And you might be sitting there saying, Grant, I love Jesus so much. But the reality is we dig under the surface, so that as much as you love Jesus, you love your job more. Work is more important to you than Jesus. Work defines who you are more than Jesus. And you find your identity, your significance, your sense of worth and value in your job, in your career, in your work, more than you do in Him. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're going, Grant, I'm a worshiper of the King. I just love God. I want to serve Him with everything. I want to give Him my whole life. And in a sense, that's true. But in another sense, actually your romantic partner or lack of a romantic partner is more important to you than Him. And actually your allegiance is more handed over to the idea of a person, a partner, a romance, a relationship than it is to Jesus. And really you worship them. You worship the relationship or the idea of a relationship more than you worship Him. And you might be saying with your mouth, yes, Jesus, take all of me. I'm yours. I belong to you. But in reality, that relationship owns you more than Christ ever has. And in your life, there are certain things that the relationship can ask of you that God can't. Certain things that you'll say yes to here that you wouldn't say yes to here. There's certain parts of your life that you won't hand over to God, but you would hand over to money or to your body. Or sorry, you wouldn't hand over your body to. You wouldn't hand over your plans to. There's just some things that are off limits to God, but not to something else. Identity can be really complicated. I'm sure you know that. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul the Apostle is writing to a church in a city called Ephesus. It's a cosmopolitan city. It's an influential city. It's a significant coastal city. And he's writing to them to help them to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. He's writing to them to help them to live out the new life and the new identity that they found as Christians. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians 1. Otherwise, it will come up on the screen as I read. But really what we see here is something of a biblical teaching around identity and who we really are in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now as I read that, or as you read that, there's a lot going on there. In fact, Verse 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence in the Greek made up of 202 words. It's quite a mouthful, you know. I think Paul could use a bit more punctuation. But as we read through that, it makes sense that you might need to go through that a few more times and just chew on everything that is going on in that passage. But I do want to highlight here before we get into any of the points that Jesus, either by name or title, is mentioned 15 times in that passage. It's more than once a verse. And on top of that, the idea of being in Christ is mentioned 11 times in there. And we've got to pay attention to that. Paul is trying to get our attention with these ideas. You see, this passage is obsessed with Jesus and what he's done for us and with who we are in him. And this passage is doing its job. It's trying to redefine us and give us a new core identity to redefine the truest thing about us in Christ. And that's what this passage is all about. Ephesians 1 is the place to go if you want to know who we are in Christ and if you want to talk about identity. So let's go through some of the different things that it has to say about us in him. And we'll start with this in verse 4. In Christ, you are holy and blameless. Now, I know some of you who are watching this, who've been Christians for a while, are smiling, or maybe only if you're alone, you're smiling, because you know what you've done recently, like yesterday or this last week or over the last while, would not be described by anyone as holy and blameless. And that's true, you know, that is true. The reality is none of us watching this today, no person in the world, no Christian, no matter how long they've walked with Jesus, is sinless and perfect. So maybe holy and blameless aren't words that you would use to describe your life now, your present, or maybe to describe your past. Maybe as you look at your past and you think about your sexual history, you go, that wasn't holy and blameless. Or as you look at your past, maybe even the recent past, you go, well, my business practices haven't been holy and blameless. The way I treat people, my ethics at work haven't been great. Or maybe just on a smaller scale, the way you've spoken to people who matter to you in your life. You realize, no, my words, my attitude, my tone, that, that hasn't been holy and blameless. So what do we do with that? You know, if our past and present aren't holy and blameless, what is going on here? Well, really what Paul is saying here is that in Christ, these words might not describe us now and they might not describe us back then, but they do describe our future condition. One day Jesus is going to return and he's going to make you and I perfectly holy and blameless. And if you're anything like me, you're looking forward to that day. You know, that's going to be a really, really good day. And in the meantime, 
Even if those words don't describe us, they do describe Jesus. He is the perfectly holy and blameless one. He lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die on the cross. And since, as this passage emphasizes, we are in him, then what we see is in, you know, in our position in Christ, the words that God uses to describe Jesus are used of us too. That's good news. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, For by one sacrifice, what Jesus gave on the cross, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And this is the tension that we live in in Christ. Let me just show up for a second. But Martin Luther, the famous German reformer, spoke about this in Latin using the phrase that we are simul justice et peccator. If you are a Christian watching this today, that means that you are at the same time, you live in this tension of being both a saint and a sinner. You're a saint and a sinner at the same time. And what we see in this passage is that truth. In Jesus, you have been made perfect forever by what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. And that sacrifice is enough. We don't have to add to that at all. So perfect forever is how God sees you and how he treats you in Jesus, which is really good news. But at the same time, you know that you are not perfect. And you and I are in this process of sanctification, where the Spirit of God is at work in us, making us more like Jesus slowly over time, often more slowly than we would want. But we are being made holy. So for Christians, holy and blameless is not yet our condition, but holy and blameless is our identity in Jesus, and it's our destination in Jesus. That is where we are headed. So the promises of Ephesians 1 and of Hebrews 10 are real. They're just not realized in our lives just yet. But we're, we're heading there. We're getting there. Secondly, in Christ, you are blessed. I think this is one of those funny words which social media has kind of distorted and twisted a bit. Because when I hear the word blessed, I just think of that hashtag. And I think of so many social media posts where people are kind of posing and or humble bragging or just bragging about their lives and it stirs up all sorts of envy and coveting and comparison between us and them and if you're anything like me you've had one of those moments where you're doing something mundane and monotonous while you're doing it you scroll and you see someone you know or at least before 2020 maybe in 2019 this happened you see someone you know doing something so cool so exotic so exciting or they're just where you wish you were, lying on some tropical beach, sipping Mai Tai or a cocktail and relaxing. And you're sitting and you're doing this chore or this mundane work thing at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. And you think, where did I go wrong? How do they live the blessed life? They're living the dream and here I am. Well, Ephesians um, isn't going to help you to live your best life now, at least in terms of the social media idea of it. But what we see here is that in Christ you are blessed, whether you're on that tropical island or having a mundane Wednesday morning. But the blessing in Christ that we see here isn't the promise of wealth. It's not the promise of a stress-free life or a cocktail. It's not the promise that you'll never get sick or that your life is never going to be filled with suffering or struggles or that all your dreams will come true. As much as I wish that I could promise you that today. But I actually think we've learned this through 2020. We have been forced to develop a theology of suffering and of endurance and of hardship through what we've gone through. And many of you have clung on to Jesus in very difficult moments because he's been our only hope. So I think we've learned this already. But what Paul is saying to us in Ephesians 1 is that we are blessed in Jesus with every spiritual blessing, even though that doesn't necessarily mean the world's definition of the good life. 
the blessing that Paul is describing here is in terms of our relationship with God. In Christ, we've been reconciled to God. We have a relationship with God. We know God. And even in the suffering and struggles of life, we are never alone. He is there with us. At the end of last year, or right at the beginning of 2021, a member of our church who's kind of spent the last year in lockdown on their own, wrote this beautiful post about the year and just the reflection they had done. And one of the lines that they said really struck me. They said, yes, I've been alone for the last year, but I haven't been lonely because God has been with me. I thought that was the most beautiful thing. He is with us through whatever we are going through. He's there. And what Paul says is, in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in the good and the bad times. Even though we're so often distracted by so many things that are competing for our attention, Paul says that the things that really matter, the things that God values most highly, don't need to be chased after or grabbed or earned or won because they are already ours in Christ. You are blessed. Thirdly, verse 4, in Christ you are chosen. And I don't know if you've had any of those big moments of being chosen in your life. I know growing up, I was not very sporty. So I didn't often get that experience of being chosen for sports teams. I was often chosen last. Or maybe if one of my friends was the captain, they would pick me first and make me feel better about myself. But what about romantically? You know, I've, I've experienced rejection romantically. I don't know why she'll agree to date me and marry me, but it's been such an amazing gift, just the feeling of being chosen by someone. What about chosen for a job? You know, you are the candidate who they pick. Or maybe you've experienced the opposite, where you've applied for a job and you haven't got it, and you felt that rejection or that disappointment of not being chosen. What Ephesians 1 tells us is that you and I have been chosen by God, which is greater than anything else that this world has to offer. And if you're here watching this today and you feel rejected or you feel like the story you've lived has been one of rejection, you know, maybe it's rejection by parents, not having the relationship with them you would have wanted. Maybe that's like romantic rejection by the partners that you've had or haven't had. Maybe that's rejection at work or by friends or co-workers or whatever that is. What we see here is the comfort that comes from knowing that the God of the universe who knows everything sees you and knows you and chooses you in Christ. Isn't that good news? You have been chosen by God, which means you have been seen by the King. He knows you and he values you and he chooses you. And the fact that he chose you shows that you have great worth and great value in the eyes of the King of Kings. And what we see in this passage is that God chose you before the foundation of the world, which means you haven't done anything deserving to be chosen. And that gives us really two huge points for confidence. The first is this. When you and I fail and mess up and don't do what we should do and don't live as Christians or, or however you want to phrase that, we don't have to fear rejection. And the reason is because God chose us before the foundation of the earth, before we sinned or did anything, but he chose us knowing everything that we would do. God is not shocked or embarrassed at your sin. God doesn't blush when you sin. God has seen it all. He's been around for a long time. He hates sin, but when you do something, he's not shocked by it. In fact, he knew your whole life, your future before you knew it, and he still chose you. 
And secondly, he chose us before the foundation of the earth, before we did anything. It means he hasn't chosen us based on our good works. You know, our, our sin hasn't disqualified us. Our good works haven't chosen us. No, he chose us by grace before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. Fourthly, in Christ, you've been adopted as God's son or daughter. Now, to be adopted means that you've got all the rights and the privileges of the father's children. So if you're in Christ today, it means that everything that God has spoken over Jesus is true of you in him. And I love the baptism of Jesus. I think it's such a significant theological moment for us in understanding our identity in Christ. But in that moment, as Jesus is baptized in water and as he comes out, the spirit of God descends on him as a dove. And the voice of the father speaks from heaven in Luke 3 verse 22 and says, you are my son who I love with whom I'm well pleased. Identity, you are my son, that is who you are who I love, the affection of heaven, with whom I'm well pleased, God's affirmation, I'm pleased with you, I like you. And I've been trying to do that every night as I put my daughter to bed, I put her down and in my own words I say, August, you're my little girl, I love you so much and I'm so pleased with you and so proud of you. And I want her to grow up familiar with those words from me, so she knows her identity in our family, but also I pray and I desire that she would know who she is in Christ. She would grow up secure in that. This idea here that you are a child of God, loved by God, and he is pleased with you is the truest thing about you in Christ. That is the core of your identity, and this is something we need to fight and pray and remind ourselves of so that we live into it and enjoy the truth of it in our lives. But I do want you to notice something at Jesus' baptism. In this moment, Jesus doesn't find his identity from what he did. Because he hasn't done anything yet, you know. His ministry hasn't begun. He hasn't died on the cross. None of the, the highlights of Jesus' life are the reasons that he finds the Father's affirmation there. We actually know very little about his life before this point. No, his identity didn't come from what he did. And it didn't come from those around him. In fact, some of the people that were around him at this time would be people who rejected him or called for him to be crucified or tried to have him killed. Jesus didn't find his identity horizontally from what he did or from the people around him. He found it vertically in his relationship with the Father. And I want to ask you today, where are you looking for your identity? Is it horizontally? Is it in you? What you do, are you good enough? Is it in the words of people? Are you looking to work or money or success or relationships or sex or marriage? Where are you looking? Is it horizontal or are you looking to Christ? Are you looking to your Father in heaven to define who you are and speak those words of identity, affirmation and affection over your life? Fifthly, in Christ we are redeemed and forgiven. Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Redemption means freedom from slavery upon the payment of a ransom fee. And the gospel teaches us that Jesus has bought us back from our slavery to sin so that we have been set free. See, whereas in the past, some of you know this, you were stuck in sin, you were slaves or prisoners of sin, unable to get free. What Jesus has done is he has broken the power of sin at the cross, and he has given us the power to live free from sin and the slavery that it brings in our lives. See, outside of Christ, we are slaves to sin. We are locked in the prison cell of sin, and we're unable to get free, but in Christ, we have been set free and we are no longer prisoners. We have a new identity. 
The gospel teaches us that today, when Christians sin, when we mess up, when we fail, when we go back to our old habits and ways, when we slip back into that and go back into that old prison cell, we don't have to stay there. Even though those shackles might feel familiar, even though the kind of prison outfit might be something we're so used to wearing or being in that cell might be familiar to us, we don't have to stay in that place anymore. We don't have to continue doing those things anymore because we're free. Sometimes you and I are so used to our slavery to sin. We're so used to our old ways that even though we're free, even though we're forgiven, even though we have a new identity in Christ, we don't live like we're free. We stay in that prison of sin and we keep doing the things that we used to do. But the gospel says that we are no longer captives. The gospel says the prison doors are gone. In fact, the power of the cross has blown them right off of the hinges. We aren't slaves anymore. We don't have to live there anymore. We don't have to stay in that place or doing those same things. We can walk out anytime we want. Don't know if you've watched any of those prison movies where someone has served their time. Now they're free to go and they collect their clothes and they collect their old possessions and they get changed and they walk out free. That is what the gospel says over you and I. We've been redeemed. We've been bought free and we can leave. We can live our lives free from slavery to sin. You've been forgiven of your sin through what Jesus has done. But you've also been freed from the power of sin so you no longer need to live those old ways. We can live out the new way of our new identity in Him. This passage is just so full of the truth of what Jesus has done for us and who we are in Him. Verse 13, in Christ you are saved. You are saved from your old sin. You are saved from the wrath and judgment of God. And you are saved to know and be with Him. On top of that, verse 13, we are called believers. You know what that means? We live by faith in the Son of God. Verse 13 also says we are sealed with the precious Holy Spirit. A seal was a mark of ownership. It was branded onto cattle back in the day to show who they belonged to, who their masters were. And you and I have been chosen by God. We've been adopted into His family as sons and daughters. And now the seal of the Holy Spirit is stamped on our bodies. We belong to Him. It's the royal crest of the kingdom of God is on your hearts, under your clothes, under your skin and bone and everything else. People might not be able to see it, even in terms of the way you're living and the decisions you're making. Maybe the way of God is not visible in your life, but underneath all of that, the seal of the Holy Spirit is there saying, whether you act well or whether you act badly, you belong to Jesus. Do you believe all of that? Do you believe that these truths of Ephesians 1 are true of you? Do you believe that you are blessed, chosen, adopted, holy and blameless, redeemed and forgiven and sealed with the Holy Spirit? Do you believe those things today? I think each one of us needs to be reminded of these things again and again and again. We need to pray these things from our heads to our hearts. We need to speak these truths over ourselves because we have what some people call gospel amnesia. We know these things, but we keep forgetting them. We know them, but we don't live in light of them. I'm sure we do have some Adam Sandler fans watching this today. I saw this last week that it's 25 years since Happy Gilmore, that golf movie of his, came out. And he published like a video of him hitting the ball the Happy Gilmore way. But I like a lot of those old Adam Sandler films. And I think one of the sweetest is Fifty First Dates. If you don't know the plot, I won't ruin the end for you. But in it, Adam Sandler plays Henry Roth, who's this veterinarian at the Sea Life Park in Hawaii. 
And one day he ends up at this cafe and meets this girl played by Drew Barrymore. Got great on-screen chemistry together. And this girl Lucy Whitmore and him just hit it off. They have a great time, great banter, great chemistry and they decide they're going to have a date the next day at that cafe. Same time, same place, all of that. So Henry Roth shows up for breakfast and he comes and flirts with Drew Barrymore. And in that moment she rejects him. And they end up getting into a fight and he gets beaten up by her and he's left thoroughly confused. What is going on with this girl? I thought something was happening here. And the restaurant's owner Sue comes out to Henry and explains to him that the year before Lucy had a serious car accident and she'd suffered anterograde amnesia. Every morning she wakes up thinking it's the same day. Sunday, October 13th of that same year. And in true romantic comedy form, Adam Sandler decides, you know what he's going to do? He's going to spend every day of the rest of his life making her fall in love with him again. And everyone goes, ah, oh, that's so beautiful, you know. But he thinks through a bunch of creative ways that he can remind her of who she is, remind her of the developments in her life, remind her of him so that she doesn't forget. And he ends up making a videotape that she watches at the start of every day that reminds her of who she is and who he is and what has been going on in their lives so that she can live in light of that in the day that is ahead so that she doesn't forget who she is and what's going on in her life and this is the same for us as followers of Jesus every day we need to start the day by reminding ourselves of who we are in Jesus and what he's done for us we need to watch that videotape we, we need to rehearse the gospel again, reminding ourselves of our true identity and then going out into the world to live in light of it. The truths that I've shared with you today have huge implications for the way we see the world and ourselves and the way we live. And we need to get these into our minds and pray them into our hearts. And when we don't believe them, we need to preach them to ourselves, read through these scriptures, meditate on them, memorize them, share them with ourselves. Because this is the truest thing about us, and we forget these things so easily. Who you are in Christ is the center of your being, and it redefines every part of the rest of your life. So who are you this morning? Who are you? And what is defining you? Is it Jesus or something else? I'm going to end with one last story. Some of you might have heard this before. One day a small child named Thomas Edison, you may have heard of him before, he grows up to be someone fairly significant. One day Thomas Edison came home from school and handed a letter to his mother. He said, this is from the teacher and she said, only you can read this. What does it say, mom? So her eyes well up with tears as she reads this letter aloud to her child saying, your son is a genius. The school is too small for him and doesn't have good enough teachers to train him. Please teach him yourself. And his mother did just that for a long time before she passed away. And years after Edison's mom had died, he became one of the greatest inventors of all time. At one point in America alone, he had over a thousand patents out in his name. But he invented the light bulb, film, movie camera, a type of car battery that Ford used, and a bunch of other stuff. And one day after she died, he was going through her things, and he found the folded letter that the teacher had written to her all those years before. And he opened it up, and he read those words that his mom had read so proudly to him before. Except the letter didn't sound like what his mom had read to him. He read this. Your son is mentally deficient. We cannot let him attend our school anymore. He is expelled. Edison obviously became quite emotional reading this and later wrote in his diary, 
Thomas A. Edison was a mentally deficient child whose mother turned him into the genius of the century. I think that story tells us something quite profound. The power of words to shape our lives and how the way that we see ourselves will shape our future. I want you to imagine for a second his mother read him the original letter. The words of the teacher and of the school over his life. Imagine she treated him in light of that letter and what the teacher had said of him. Do you think Edison would have grown up to be a great inventor? Of course not. And I want you to know today that Satan has written a letter with all of your sins and failings and shortcomings, everything that could disqualify you, every reason that you should amount to nothing, and why God should reject you and why people should reject you. And he wants to read that over your life. He wants those words to stick to you, like all those labels I spoke about earlier. And some of us are letting him. Some of us know that letter so well, we've got it memorized. Satan doesn't have to read it anymore. We read it to ourselves every day. That is the videotape we start each day watching. That defines us and defines how we live and what we do. But in Christ, we are read a different letter. This isn't read to us by our mothers, as amazing as they are. This is read to us by our Father in heaven, just like Jesus at his baptism. It's a letter of a new identity, a letter of what Jesus has done and what that means for us. And it says something like this, insert your name here, Grant is forgiven, redeemed, adopted, loved, blessed, chosen, and new in Christ. The tr this is the truest thing about you if you're a Christian watching this today. And as we begin to believe the truth of who we are in Jesus, it changes everything about our lives and will reshape our futures. So like Edison... I want to say you and I are imperfect people with flaws and failings. We struggle with sin. We struggle with becoming holy and blameless. And we're kind of growing in that way so much slower than we wish we were. But we can each write in our diary something like this, something like what Edison wrote in his. Insert your name again. Grant was an imperfect sinner, far from God, who made some bad decisions. But his Savior changed his life and turned him into a completely new man. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus, which speaks a new identity over you and I in him, but it begins with him. And as I end this message today, I want to leave you with those two questions that have been kind of going back and forth throughout the sermon. Who are you? Are you in Christ or not today? And what is defining you? Is it Jesus or not? I don't know what stood out to you from this message today, but what does the gospel say about you and your identity that you are believing and that you're not believing? And how are you going to respond to the good news of the gospel about your own identity today? Let me leave you with that. Why don't you spend some time meditating and praying around those things?